Well, over the last few days, you haven't been able to turn on the radio or the TV without seeing news about a particular subject. Uh, There have been interrogations uh, just a few days ago uh, from the nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, to the Supreme Court and his accuser, Christine Blasey Ford. Some of you are getting nervous, me just talking about it, aren't you? (laughs) I'm not going to get into those details. But there have been sort of interrogations. So each of these individuals sat before a group of senators and answered questions. They were giving witness to their side of the story. And so Christine Blasey Ford is bearing witness in her accusations against Brett Kavanaugh. And Brett Kavanaugh is giving witness to what he says these things are not true. Each of them are being questioned and they are giving their answers and you're left with kind of a, a difficult choice, perhaps. What do you do with these things? You, you weigh the, the claims of each witness, and you have to consider the, the veracity of those claims, the truth of those claims, and then at some point, you have to make a decision on who are you going to believe. Well, you don't have to make that decision. We don't have to make that decision. There's a group of senators who must make that decision, and really, you have to wonder, too, to what extent is, are, are the media reporting the importance of these stories and to what point are they making them important? We have to consider these, this is only indirectly related to me. You don't have to make a decision about what these witnesses are saying. But we come to a witness in the text, and there are other instances in your own life where you have to make a decision about what you're going to believe from a witness. And in our passage for today, we see a witness. I should have changed the title of my sermon to, Can I Get a Witness? (laughs) John here is a witness, and he is giving witness to Jesus Christ. We have already seen several times throughout the prologue where John is said to be a witness. The, the author continues on saying this. He is a witness who came to bear witness. He himself was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And so in this particular passage, we have the content of that witness. Here is John being a witness. And so you here today, in the hearing of this word of God, you have to hear this witness. Consider the veracity of his claims as a witness, and then decide, will you believe him? Will you put your faith in this one whom he is proclaiming? Now, our tendency, perhaps with this particular text and others like it, our tendency might be to first jump to, John is a witness, I'm a witness, so I need to follow his example in giving a witness just like John. And there may be some application there. I think there are some things we can learn from that. But first and foremost, John is the witness, and you are the one hearing the case. And you have to decide, am I going to hear him and believe what he says about Jesus? So let's jump right into his witness then. There are two main sections here. I take verses 19 to 28 to be John's witness about himself, and then verses 29 to 34 to be John's witness about Jesus. So John is being interrogated by priests and Levites who have been sent from Jerusalem. They're asking him questions. They're they're trying to figure out who he is. They are concerned about what he's doing. We learn that he's baptizing. 
And so these are sent from the Jews, from Pharisees, to find out who he is. This is the witness of John. This is the testimony of John, the author says. And when they ask, who are you? John confesses and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He knew what they were after. He either knew what they were after or he knew what he wanted to get to. I am not the Messiah. And they continue, then, who are you then? Are you Elijah? He says, I am not. There's a prophecy in Malachi, the very end of the prophet Malachi, which says, I will send to you my prophet Elijah before that great and awesome day when the time of judgment will come. Are you Elijah? Are you this eschatological figure ushering in the judgment of God? No, I am not Elijah. Well, then, are you the prophet? To which, again, they are referring to a prophecy in the Old Testament from Deuteronomy when God says, I will send to you a prophet like Moses who will have the words of God in his mouth and he will speak those words to you. Are you the prophet? And again, he says, no, I am not the prophet. One thing you should notice about John's witness is that he is a very humble witness. He knows what his job is. He knows what his role is. It is not to speak about himself. So every question they ask, he defers. No, not me. No, not me. It's not about me. It's about someone who is to come. In fact, when he finally does answer, to answer them, they, they say, we've got to have some sort of answer. You've got to give us something. We can't just go back with a series of denials. Who are you? When he finally comes to the point of saying who he is, he, he doesn't even refer to himself as a person. I am the voice, he says. I'm nothing. I am simply the voice crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the way of the Lord. It is a quote, as you see, from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 40, in verse 3. A voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. The, the idea here, the image here, is a clearing out, as if you've ever gone through the forest, a clearing out of the forest to make a way, make a path so you can get where you're trying to go. But in, in this passage, it's not only just clearing out a forest, it's making a, a highway, a road. It's leveling down the hills, wiping them out. It's raising up the valleys. It's clearing out a path. In this passage, it seems for God's people to come back to Jerusalem out of exile. But then it takes on an even greater significance because later on in this passage, it's not just the people of God who are going down this path. It is preparing a way for the Lord God himself to come to his people. Now, put in those terms, you can see John's witness, though he is humble about himself, he's not humble about what is happening. This is a new age dawning. This is something of truly epic proportions. This is the God of all the universe coming down. This is, he's ushering in a new age, the age of the Messiah. Get ready because God is coming. That should have sent shudders down the spines of those who heard. Get ready. The Lord himself is coming. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the paths of the Lord. They ask him, 
they must have missed that. They must have totally missed his reference back to Isaiah and the significance of what he said there because they continue to ask him, then why are you baptizing? If you are not an eschatological figure who has come to begin the time of the Messiah, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you are not the prophet, then why are you doing this eschatological work? Why are you baptizing? Should I just continue going? (laughs) Now is a good time to set your phones to silent if you haven't done so already. So I'll I'll take a page out of... uh, our esteemed Professor McKenzie's book, and call your attention back up here. I'm knocking on the, the lectern. <laughs> so John is here. He is humble about his own witness to himself. And yet they continue to a- ask him, then why are you baptizing? Why are you, especially in light of who it is that's asking him, right? It's priests and Levites. It's their job to carry out these, these ritualistic Uh, ceremonies not John's what is he doing why is he here in the wilderness baptizing if you're not one of these very important eschatological figures and John again deflects away from himself he says I baptize with water but here it comes I'm nothing I'm just baptizing with water but among you stands one you do not know even who who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. In all of John's witness, he is deflecting away from himself to the one who is to come. And in that sense, although we are not the witnesses here, we are the ones hearing the witness of John, it does give us a good example of our own witness to Christ. That we, in in telling others of who Jesus is, are not oriented around ourselves, but around the one who is to come. And so, like John, we point away from ourselves to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We, we could get caught up into all kinds of things that are oriented around ourselves in w- giving witness to Christ, can we not? It is a legitimate thing to give your own personal testimony of how God has changed you. But it's something entirely different to stay there than to move on and point them to the one who can actually save them. Your testimony can't save anyone. And you could get caught up into apologetics. Maybe some of you have friends who, maybe they believe in God, but they don't believe there's one particular path, there's one particular religion that you have to follow. They might think all all religions are basically the same. They teach moralism. They teach how to be kind to one another. You could get up into all kinds of apologetic debates, thinking about the existence of God and the truth of the scriptures and the truth of this witness, which can be helpful and legitimate as well. But ultimately, where do you need to point? To Jesus Christ. He is the one. So in our witness, let us orient ourselves away from ourselves to Jesus Christ who can actually save sinners. This is what John is doing, pointing away. And so when we come to verse 29, we finally get to the point where John wants to go and where the author of this book wants to go. He wants to get away from John to the one who was coming. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We come now to John's witness of Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He points to Jesus as he's walking. Can you imagine the scene? Here he is. Here's the one I've been speaking of. Look to him. Behold, this Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. The Lamb, of course, is a rich, uh, richly seen throughout the Old Testament, right? It comes up again and again, this image of the Lamb. But what is, what is he talking about here? What reference is this to? We could consider the Paschal Lamb. Maybe it is a reference to that Lamb which was killed by the Israelites, uh, who, which had their, its blood smeared around the doorposts in order for the angel of death to pass over them as he went through Egypt and killed every firstborn. In that sense, it would be one who, uh, the lamb which causes the angel of death to pass over, to not impute the guilt upon this family. Certainly, we would think about the, the ongoing sacrifices that the priests would have made day after day of day, day after day, not only of lambs, but of other animals. And again, I think that takes on a certain significance considering that it's the priests and the Levites who are questioning John. Over and over, a, a lamb slaughtered, an animal slaughtered in order to pay for the sin, not only of the priests, but of the people. But I think in the rest of the context, we have an even clearer reference, I would argue, to another passage in the book of Isaiah. You are all probably well familiar with Isaiah 53, which speaks of the suffering servant. Really, the servant, you can back it all the way up in 49 or maybe even earlier, God speaking about his servant. So you have, consider you have Isaiah saying, make straight the path of the Lord, this voice in the wilderness, and then continuing on, it's God who is going to come, and we're preparing this way for God himself to come to his people. And then you have this focus for an extended several chapters of this servant of the Lord who is coming. And in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, it says, He was oppressed, this servant of God, this servant who is going to usher in God's kingdom. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I think it takes on a special significance as we consider what that suffering servant does as this lamb. He bears the sin of God's people. He bears their guilt. He takes away their sin. So the idea here, taking away of sin, is removing sin from humans. The word is in the singular there, not sins of the world, but sin of the world, which causes us to consider, well, what is he speaking of there? Is he speaking... He's speaking not merely of individual sins, but of the sinful condition of humanity. Here is the Lamb who takes away not only your individual sins, brothers and sisters, but your sinful condition. Do you see the difference between those two? He could take away individual sins from yesterday that you committed. But what does that mean for your sin condition? 
He could take away as you confessed your sins day after day. As the ancient people of God confessed their sins and the priests offered up daily sacrifices, they were assured that their sins were taken away. But what about tomorrow? What about the next day? What about the sins I will commit in the future because my sin condition still remains? And even greater, we would ask, what do I do about my sinful status before God Almighty? And it is said here that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is saying, He is the one who has taken away your sinful status before God Himself. And not only will it apply to the Jewish people, not only will it apply to the Israelites, it will apply to any and everyone who comes to trust in this Lamb of God. He's not saying that the sinful condition is taken away from every individual human in the world but that if any individual is to have their sinful condition, their sinful status taken away, here's where where it will happen. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I remember several times when my kids were younger and they had a, a severe illness of some sort. Maybe it was the flu. I remember one particular time with Isaiah when he had a fever. He was just five weeks old and he was it it wouldn't go away it was a high fever and we didn't know what was going on and I know many of you have felt the same way this this helplessness when you look at your child as they go through something like that and and you maybe or maybe even uh, a family member a, a loved one who has something going on some disease or sickness and you wish in your heart I wish I could take that from them If anything, I just wish I could remove that from them. I would take it on myself. I would suffer the consequences of that. And then as long as they would be well. And in some cases, you do take on that flu, don't you? And caring for them, you take it as well as them. Well, as Jesus, Jesus as the Lamb of God, he actually does that with our sin. He, he takes that upon himself. He takes that sickness, that disease of sin upon himself, bears it himself, and removes it from those who come to him in faith. This is what Jesus as the Lamb of God does for his people. And so John, as he points to Jesus, who is walking this, this man, who he explains also is the pre-existent one because he is truly God and truly man. This man, look at him. He is the one who takes away your sin, brothers and sisters. Isn't that good news? That is such good news. If if someone's sin is going to be taken away, it will only be by the Lord Jesus Christ. This has significance for unbelievers and believers alike. For unbelievers, unbelieving friends and family that you have, again, it means you point them to the one who can actually take away their sin. The world doesn't know what to do with their sin. They don't even like to call it sin. But they do recognize that something is wrong with the world. They recognize it is broken and that wrong things are done. They recognize there are injustices done in the world, but they don't know what to do with their sin. And yet, believer, consider wrong ways you try to deal with your own sin, even after you have looked to Jesus, the Lamb of God. You may try to cover it up. We'll just sweep it under the rug. We'll forget about it. The statute of limitations will be over with. Nobody will even recognize it. Or you try to escape it. Maybe you try to escape your sin. Martin Luther tried to do this before he was a believer by going to a a monastery 
right? I can ju- if I can just get away from the temptation, well, then I'll be free from these sins. I won't sin in these ways. And what did he find? He found what Jesus says. It's not from the outside in that these evil things take place. It is sin coming out from our own sinful hearts, which is the problem. We try to maybe work ourselves out of our sin, to try to get rid of our sins. We, we try to clean ourselves up by working harder, by doing better, by recommitting ourselves to, to, to change those behaviors, those things in our lives that we find sinful. And all of these have some legitimacy. Right? There's a legitimacy to, to setting up fences around yourself so that you might not sin and displease the Lord in that way. There's legitimacy in running away from the sin, fleeing it, and pursuing Christ. But you will not come to the right answer until you ground those things in Jesus, the Lamb of God, who has taken away your sin. Right? It must be grounded in this one. You, you must look again. You must behold again Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. This is John's witness to us. Will you believe him? Will you rely on him? Will you trust on him in him for this? But he also tells us that Jesus is not, the, not only the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is also the one who baptizes, the one who possesses and baptizes in the Holy Spirit. This is how John recognized him. He he explains, I myself didn't know him. In other words, I didn't recognize that he was the Messiah, but something happened where I I recognized him. He says, you see, God had told me something was going to happen. The one on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, that is the one. That's the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit descends upon him. The Spirit remains on him. That is the one. And this too is, was prophesied in the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Or even more de- directly related to the other scriptures we've been seeing in 40 and 54, this section of the servant of the Lord, Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The spirit rests upon him, and he is the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. This too is prophesied in Isaiah 44.3. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Also in Ezekiel 36.25-27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Also, as a note, another 
emphasis that this is indeed the servant of the Lord who has come is verse 34. John again says, I have seen and bore witness that this is the chosen one of God. There's a, a little note perhaps in your Bible. Some, some read son of God. Some read chosen of God. They're both well attested in the, the older manuscripts. I think I prefer chosen one of God for several reasons we could, we could talk about, but there's some internal evidence there that says that this is the better reading according NIV has this, the, the New English translation as well, which again points back to Isaiah 49 and following about this servant of the Lord who will come. This is the servant of the Lord. He is the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one on whom the Spirit has come and rested. And he is the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. Baptize in the Holy Spirit. He will immerse people into the Holy Spirit. He will drench them in the Holy Spirit. He will fill them with his Holy Spirit. He is the spirit baptizer. So often we think about John the Baptist. But here, John is the witness, and Jesus is the Baptist. He is the one who gives us what we actually need. You see, John says, yes, I baptize with water, but there is one who stands among you. I'm not even fit to touch his shoes. And he will baptize in the Holy Spirit. The Jews were coming to John for a baptism of repentance. They, it, they were able to recognize their own sin. They were able to recognize that which was wrong within them. But the baptism with water could do nothing to change that. What they needed was a change from the inside out. And so you have the Lamb of God who not only removes the sinful condition, but adds to his people the spirit condition. He removes from us the disease which kills us and adds to us that which can give us life, the Holy Spirit of God himself. Now, some have seen the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit here as, well, a, there's, there's plain old ordinary Christianity, and then there is this next level of Christianity that you need to get to. And in order to do that, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And usually it's our Pentecostal brothers and sisters who would say the, the evidence of that will be speaking in tongues. And you know maybe why they do that. It's because they look in Acts chapter 2, the fulfillment of Jesus pouring out his spirit on his people, the fulfillment of Jesus baptizing in the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 10, where the spirit is poured out on Gentiles as well. And they say, well, that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit. But what we have to understand is that there is no second level of Christianity, right? What Jesus has done in the pouring out of his spirit is he has baptized you in the Holy Spirit. It's not something that happens twice. This happens once at your conversion. That's why you come to him in faith in the first place. You are changed immediately into one who now loves the things of God. Brothers and sisters, if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. There is nothing more you need to go to the next level of Christianity. Rather, what you need to do is go back to what has already happened to you because of Jesus Christ and pouring out His Spirit upon you. But how often do we try to find that next level? Right? What, what's your tendency? What do you look for for the next level of Christianity? 
that which will really move you on to progress in the faith. Some self-help book, some new strategy. Looking to something beyond or above that which you already have. And you may think, someone may think, well, that's it. That's it. That's all I have is what I already have in Christ. Well, the answer is yes, and that is more than enough. The Holy Spirit of God indwells you. Is that not enough, brothers and sisters? I think about a a friend of mine from several years ago who had a problem with his liver. He had liver disease. And sometimes he would look normal, he would be fine, and then other times he would be in the hospital for days at the verge of death. And it was a constant struggle for him. Over 12 years, he he was on this transplant list, just waiting, just waiting, just waiting for someone who would be able to, to give him their liver. This entire 12 years, he had been insistent that neither of his sons would do that. But I don't know why, but finally, for some reason, he agreed to let his son, who was, had been trying over and over again, let me, let me give a part of my liver. Did you know they can take half of the liver and implant it into someone else, and it grows into a full liver? Well, the change in this man, Mike, was radical. It was unbelievable. I mean, it, was, it almost seemed instantaneous, where he was feeling better every day. He could now do things without fear of being on the verge of death at at a moment's notice. But you know, another change that took place was up here in his heart and in his mind, not just in his body. I don't don't think you you could see him in an ungrateful mood ever again. Now, I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure he does. But his, his mood, his, his outlook on life, everything about him was changed radically because he had been given a new life. Well, brothers and sisters, how much more of a new life have we been given in the baptism of the Holy Spirit? How could we ever be ungrateful? How could we ever think that we need something more when God has put his very life inside of us? John is pointing, he is witnessing to this one who has taken away your sins, brothers and sisters, and who has given you his very life in the Holy Spirit. You were indwelt by God. And has that changed? Something in your mind and in your heart? Has that, have you been able to understand what it is that has taken place in you? Do you understand that you can't gain favor with God by anything that you do, by any amount of effort, by any amount of sorrow, but that God has done it completely and graciously for you in Jesus Christ? He has done everything necessary for your salvation, for your acceptance before Him. It is all in Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. Behold the Lamb of God, the Spirit baptizer who has baptized you with the very life of God. John is our witness this morning and he calls you to behold the Lamb of God. And the question to us is, will you believe Him? Will you believe what John is telling you? And perhaps, perhaps 
you say, yes, I will believe, but I look at my own life and I, unfortunately, you say, I, I don't see that much change from when I first became a Christian to, w- to where I am now. What's the problem? Why am I not growing like I feel like I ought to? Well, even Paul himself says, no one's going to judge me. I'm not even going to judge myself. It is the Lord who will judge between those things. But I also can't help but think maybe, maybe the Christian life isn't first and foremost about getting better. Maybe it's about getting better at resting in this one who was good enough for you, this one who was perfect for you, this one who bore your sins and indwells you by his Holy Spirit. Maybe it's about getting better at trusting in this one John is giving witness to. Do you trust him? Are you resting in him, brothers and sisters? Let's go to him in prayer.